What does it mean to say that someone is deconstructing their faith? Can that be a good thing? Or is it the first step towards someone eventually abandoning their faith? How do you help someone re-examine their faith, but to do it in a constructive way? I'll answer these questions and more with my co-host, Sean McDowell, and his co-author, Dr. John Marriott, of a new book called Set Adrift. I'm your host, Scott Ray, and this is Think Biblically from Tablet School of Theology at Biola University. So, Sean, you're in, you're sort of my guest today. Yeah, this is kind of fun. Uh, this will be great. Yeah, I, I get to put it. you on the hot seat like I don't always get to when do. When you said host, so. I almost jumped in and said, uh, and co-host. <laughs> I had to restrain myself. <laughs> Appreciate you doing that. John, welcome. Great to have you with us. John's been a colleague at uh, Tablet for many, many years. He's taught mm. apologetics in our philosophy program for a long time, taught church society for me on several occasions. Uh, the author of five books on this subject of people who are deconstructing their faith. So, Sean, why don't you still start with you? Uh, why did you and John mm. set out to write this book, and why is this why is this issue so important to you? Well, I got to give John the credit for the idea for this book. He's written four other books on deconstruction that I've read. We've talked about on deconstruction and deconversion. I consider him the expert. He's done a lot of the hard work, five, six, seven years, just researching this. As a scholar. So you're just writing his coattails. Well, right? yeah, there you go. That's that's one way to look at it. So he came to me. That's how said, I look at it. Yeah, there you yeah. go. There you go. He said, I got this idea for kind of a popular level book. There's not one written in this lane for young Christians. So probably on the on the younger end would be high school, but even in a college and maybe young adults who want to stay with their Christian faith, but have doubts, but have questions, are just not sure how to navigate owning their faith, so to speak, in this deconstruction space. And having gone through that in my life, now I wouldn't have used the word deconstruction at that point because people weren't describing it that way, but especially even here as a student at Biola, going through a real period of questioning and coming across atheists online and having a conversation with my dad, I'm not even sure if I believe this or not, and then just questioning things. And a lot of people like professors here, William Lane Craig and J.P. Moreland, and yourself, just huge in my faith journey. Basically, it's the book I wish somebody could have handed to me when I was questioning and said, read this. So I think this is, this is really helpful for our viewers to hear this, that uh, you had a pretty significant period when you were a college student mm. where you, were, you called into question a lot of things, and you had a lot of conversation with your dad about this. And your dad, I think, was really helpful in how he approached you on this. Oh, yeah. And my, my dad, I'm sure a lot of people understand, is one of the most influential apologists in the past half century. The tagline on his ministry is telling the world the truth. And so we had a conversation. I was like, Dad, I'm just not sure I convinced this is true. I didn't want to chuck my Christian faith, but I had to know how to navigate emotional questions, relational questions, intellectual questions. And his response was gold. His response, he didn't freak out. He just said, you know, I love you no matter what. It's good that you're asking these questions, seek after truth, and just gave me the kind of space that I needed. And in a sense, John and I kind of frame this book in the sense that we've had so many conversations with other young people. We invite them to kind of allow us to just speak from our experience, from our, our research and our wisdom here to guide you through this process in the way my dad and others did for me. And you have a story now, similarly. John, yeah, you've got, you've got your own account of this that... Uh happened around the same general time period. Right? Yeah. It, yeah. It was around the same time as Sean's did. And um, it, it really makes me think that, you know, sometimes Christian kids need to get saved. And I use that term in quotes about three times. 
I, I got saved when I was about five or six years old. And I think I really believed it. I think I was really born again at that point in time. But when I was 14 years old, I came, I went to a Bible camp and I heard the mm. preacher there say, you know, God has no grandchildren and you need to make your faith your own. You can't just believe it because your parents. So I did the, you know, the, the classic, I think it's probably a classic 1980s move, the rededication. <laughs> I rededicated my life because I wanted to make it mine. I didn't want it to just be my parents. But then at about, you know, my early 20s, I, I looked back and said, so I rededicated, but do I actually think that this is true? Once you get a little bit of experience out in mm-hmm. the world and mm-hmm. you start to realize that maybe the things that you've believed don't always line up with the experience of life. And there were a number of things that happened in my life that caused me to say, I've been committed to this for a really long time, but I committed to it well before I asked if it was really true. And then what's the content of this body of truth that I'm supposed to affirm? And it was going through some of those difficult experiences that caused me to sort of pull back and say, all right, what is it that I think is true? And if I'm going to be a Christian, what do I think that real Christianity is supposed to look like? All right. So let's let's sort of put the backstory aside for the moment. And let's talk about what we mean by the term deconstruction, because that's kind of a new term that's been used to describe, I think, Sean, what you what you refer to as just this sort of general re-examining mm-hmm. the contours of your faith. So what what do you mean by that technical term, deconstructing your faith? And maybe, maybe it'd be helpful for our viewers, too, for you to clarify what you don't mean yes. by that. And I appreciate the question. This is a really, really important question. I mean, for the overall discussion that's going on in culture and within the evangelical church, and, and specifically for the book, so Sean and I are, are really want to be clear that when we talk about deconstructing, we're not talking about it in the term, in, in the way that it comes out of uh, French postmodern philosophy. Uh, they're, they're, th- that term has been kind of co-opted and, and now it's become very loose. And, and Okay, just uh, so our viewers un- understand what you mean by that, just spell out a little bit the, the yes. whole, you know, the, the, the postmodern sense of what deconstruction is. Sure. So the term traces itself back to a French philosopher by the name of Jacques Derrida. Hmm. Derrida, for some ethical reasons and concerns that he had with illegitimate authority, wanted to show that when it comes to one true interpretation of of a story about the world, or particularly about texts, that there really is no clear one interpretation that outrules all the others, and then forces all those out to those other interpretations out to be marginalized and disenfranchised. And he went about deconstructing texts by reading them closely and trying to show that there were seeds of inconsistency and contradictions in the text. And if you can uproot the assumption that texts are, de- that you can determine the actual meaning of a text, that opens it up to a play of possible interpretations and you have to let people hold their own interpretation, whether that's a text or that's a gender identity, whatever so, that is. So it calls the whole concept of truth into question. The entire question. concept into question, correct. And so that's what Derrida w- was doing. W- when when young people use the term today, and this is why Sean and I chose to use the, the term deconstruct, they're not using it in that kind of technical way. It's really lost that technical edge. What most of them are saying, or at least the ones that we wrote the book for, are those mm-hmm. who say, I, I do want to be a follower of Jesus. I, I do think that it's true, but I'm not really quite sure about the, what the way of Jesus is supposed to look like anymore, because I have lots of questions about what I see going around me and maybe in my church environment. The, those are the people that we're talking to. And when we talk about deconstruction, what we mean is kind of a, a critical reexamination of the faith that you've been passed on 
and asking whether it lines up with the text of the Bible. So taking it apart, taking a look at it, and seeing whether or not it's faithful to what the Bible teaches, and then reassembling it in a way that um, matches what you think the Bible says a follower of Jesus should be living and what they should be believing. And you can almost say it's two words, like destroy and reconstruct. It's to break down and build back up. So oftentimes deconstruct is purely just negative breaking down, and sometimes that happens. We're framing it in the way that John did, that it's re-examining, it's reconsidering, but we're constructing something on solid ground, so to speak. Okay. And I, th- I, I can see where part of the concern would be that, you know, if, if students or, you know, young adults don't have some, someone helpful to guide them in this, it could end up being entirely destructive, uh, and which is something we want to avoid. So, Sean, why, why, I mean, think about your own experience, too, on this. Yeah. Why do young, you know, college students, young adults... Why do they enter into this phase of deconstruction in the first place? Luke 2.52 says Jesus grew in wisdom and in strength, favor with God and in favor with man. He grew intellectually, physically, spiritually, and relationally. He was a whole being that was multifaceted. That's absolutely true for us. Now, I bring that up because we tend to think when somebody starts to lose their faith or enters into a deconstruction period— that it's just intellectual, they just have questions. That's a piece of it that can trigger it. Sometimes that can be a large piece of it. But there's also sometimes emotional hurt that takes place for so many people that enter into a period of deconstruction. If you just probe deeply enough, you're going to find disillusionment with the church. You're going to find a broken relationship with a leader. You'll find things like legalism are so frequent Uh, You'll just find so many other factors. So bottom line is it can be relational. It can be emotional. It can be moral. I mean, I had a young man tell me to my face, he basically left the faith because he wanted that he grew up in because he wanted to go to college and just have fun for a while and uh, be really free and join a fraternity. He told me straight up, I said, okay, so he wasn't just deconstructing his faith. He had gone to the place of Mm -hmm. rejecting it. But what started it for him was these moral questions Now, he came at me with all these intellectual questions, and as I probed enough, I realized there's a story beneath the story. So I think one of the things that – one of the great values in this book is some people don't really even realize why they've entered into a period of deconstruction. I don't think I realized it really at the time what was going on. There were pieces of my identity, pieces of my future, my relationship with my father, and there were deep intellectual questions that I was asking. Now I look back and I see that. So I'm trying to help young people say there could be a relationship piece that's at play here. There could be some emotional hurt. It could be intellectual. It could be moral. That's the approach we're trying to take to help young people think through and deconstruct well. So I, I, don't, I don't know if you can put a number to this or a percentage to this, but to, you know, in your experience, both of you guys deal, you know, dealing with students and young adults, how much of this, of what motivates this deconstruction is is intellectual, and how much of it is experiential? If I had to guess, I would say probably 75% experiential off the top of my head, certainly well more than half. That's not to say the intellectual Um, questions aren't important. No, sometimes the intellectual questions trigger it, and they overlap it, but in almost every case. I mean, there's a proverb that talks about how the wise person plums the depths of a person's heart. Well, you know, helps to go deep into the well. Mm -hmm. Every single conversation I've had, if I probe far enough, 
there's something else going on driving this. What's your experience? Oh, yeah. You know, my area of interest is deconversion. So not just people rethinking their faith, but people just rejecting their faith. And one of the books that I wrote was Before You Go, mm-hmm. Discovering the Hidden Factors mm-hmm. in Faith Loss, which was when, you, when I listen to enough people tell their stories and read hundreds of narratives, there are always, there's always the same reason why they say, I don't believe anymore. And it's because it's not true. But how they get there, there's a certain percentage of people who, for whom it's intellectual. But of the vast majority, it will mm. be experiential. It will be values. Um, it will be uh, expectations and um, assumptions about God, not, him not living up to those. And sometimes it's just straight up the heart. Mm-hmm. And, and, and intellectual reasons will often be um, the caboose, not the engine on those. Now, there, as Sean said, there are some people who say, mine started and I have serious problems with just, I think that there's some real intellectual issues here. But the vast majority of people that I encounter who are going through mm-hmm. a loss of faith, and I think the people who are rethinking their faith, it, the catalyst was probably something other than just pure intellect. So you, you use the term deconversion to describe a lot of the a lot of the, the work that you've been involved in, and I think a lot of people it will equate mm. deconstruction and deconversion. And I think the fear is that when some people enter this process of de, of deconstruction, it will inevitably and sort of necessarily lead to a deconversion. But I take it that's not true. Um, and if not, if that's not true, then what are the possible outcomes mm. for somebody who deconstructs their faith? Where, where do, where along the continuum do, do people tend to end up? Sure. And that's a, that's a great question. I think the answer, the very simple answer to the question is, what is the state of your heart at the beginning of the deconstruction? If you're looking for a way to rationalize mm. something that you want to believe, if you're looking for a way to rationalize why Christianity is not true, then you will deconstruct right into a deconversion or you will deconstruct into some sort of version of Christianity that does not look like historic Orthodox Christianity, but maybe looks a lot more like the culture around it. If your intent is to sincerely follow Jesus and really rethink in a way your faith so that you can uh, align it with his lordship, then I think that deconstruction can be very productive. And so I think that it can end in a more mature faith, a faith that's um, more one's own, that they can really identify with and say, this is why I really believe this. I really thought through this. I don't believe it just because my parents or my church taught it to me. In fact, I've changed my views on some of those things. I think that it can end in a almost a heretical kind of faith where you are, are willing to compromise and compromise and, and, and move and sort of pick, pick and choosing. Yes, a salad bar approach to, to the faith. And, but I think that that doesn't necessarily have to, to be the case, but it will always be determined, I think, by the set of the saw. You set your circular saw on an angle and, and, and it will go on that angle and get across to the other mm. side of the table based on the destination is already determined by the, the start. I, I wonder if there's a fourth outcome in this that, uh, People decide after going through this process that they still believe, but just their faith is just not that important to them. Hmm. They just don't do, they're just not doing anything with it. What do you think about that? Yeah, and I think that the term that we often use for those are the duns. The people who say, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm spiritual. Not, not, not a nun, not, but a... Not a... Yes, not a nun, but a dun. I'm done with <laughs> yeah. the religious aspect of it. I still mentally affirm it. I think it's generally true, but I really don't have much use for 
being involved in a church and being mm-hmm. committed to that, the bureaucracy, all of that. It's all, it's like you said, it's not that in, in, important to me. So I, I might affirm it, but but much more than that, I, I'm not going to go. Yeah, I, w- I wouldn't I wouldn't call that a lost faith or a radical faith, but I wouldn't call it a renewed faith either. No, uh, and it, just, it, it might not be any faith at all. Yeah, yeah, that may be true. Okay, so here's you know, you know, we're we're all parents. Mm-hmm. Um, I suspect at some point our kids may ask us, you know, some of these tough questions about our experience uh, and about how you know, how we reconciled some hard things that they're wrestling with. Uh, but, uh, but I, you know, I, I've no, I see, we've all known several sets of parents whose kids start down this deconstructing road. And it's like, it's like they mm-hmm. just, they're on this roller coaster that's a white knuckle ride. And it's, it's all you can do to keep mom and dad from flipping out, feeling like dismal failures that, you know, the most important thing they could do with their kids, they failed at. Uh, how do you keep parents from f- just flipping out hmm. when their kids start going down this road? One of the wisest things I learned from my dad is he had mentally prepared ahead of time all the scenarios he could think of that myself and my three sisters might say to him and how he would respond. So if one of my sisters said, Dad, I'm pregnant. If I said, Dad, I'm dropping out of school, I'm smoking pot, whatever scenario you can think of. And so what that does, that gives you confidence to answer well, because if we don't prepare ahead of time, all that weight on us, we're just going to say stuff we regret. We're going to respond in the flesh probably instead of the spirit. So thinking through ahead of time. So I've thought through in my mind, if my son said to me similarly as I did to my dad, he said, Dad, I just, I don't know that I believe this. I don't think I'm a Christian anymore. How would I respond to that? And I've practiced that. I've had it in my mind. Mm -hmm. So the first thing is to prepare ahead of time. The second thing that's hard for parents, especially where we live in Orange County, is to just realize and separate our kids' success and lives from our job as a parent. You can be a great, perfect parent, whatever that means, and your kids can walk away. And your data shows that that happens sometimes. You can be a less than average parent, and sometimes your kids will just fall in love with the Lord. Now, there's correlations and connections here, but we've got to be able to separate ourselves, that it's not about us. How are people going to view me? What are they going to say about me? It's a little bit narcissistic, isn't it? It is, but that's our default position. I remember I asked my dad when he was doing the Why Wait campaign. He was probably the most recognizable Christian in the world speaking out for sexual purity. I said, "What what would happen if I got a girl pregnant? And he goes... He goes, I don't care what the world would say. You and I would work it through together. And I thought, wow, like he's able to separate mm-hmm. himself. Now, I realize that's easier said than done. Number one, prepare. Number two is just separate and focus on what is best for this kid. And then three, I would just lean into the relationship. Lean into the relationship. A good friend of mine has a daughter, a good friend of ours. He's an outspoken, uh, outspoken Christian leader. And his daughter has essentially rejected the faith. And he said, Sean, the switch came for me when I realized I didn't have to convince her of a position. I had to convince her of my love. He said, I'm in this for the long haul. And I'm going to lean in and build this relationship and trust that God cares more about the outcome of my child than even you or I do. That would be my encouragement to parents. One of the things that uh, some friends of ours shared with us was that, you know, when you raise kids in Christian homes, um, 
there's 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 a dynamic that takes place that doesn't exist for kids that come out of homes that are not particularly spiritually oriented. Hmm. So in, in my in my family, when I came to faith, you know, my my folks were I think nominally Presbyterian. We went to church, but the first time I heard the gospel was when I was in high school and young life. And coming to faith, and my my siblings and sister also came to faith shortly after that. And my folks later on. Um, but coming to faith was my way of separating mm-hmm. myself and sort of forming, you know, my own sort of distinct identity from my from my parents. And it is, you know, we've all had teenagers. It's not something that they do particularly gracefully, but you know, neither neither do we, uh, you know, when parenting teenagers too. But I wonder sometimes if raising kids in overtly and distinctly Christian homes, we, we, we remove that opportunity for them to separate themselves from us by nurturing their faith because that's so much a part of who we are. What, what, do, you, what do you make of that, and how does that, how do you, how does that contribute to this conversation? You know, I, I think that it's really relevant. When I think of people who have left their faith, one of the things I discovered that's there's a term that psychologists use called a false self. And the false Mm. self is not a immoral self. It's not like someone's projecting a false self. It's just that as children grow, they want to please parents and they want to please their authority figures. And so they will naturally adopt the beliefs around them. And they're passionately convinced of them until they get to a point in life when they, they come of age, they mature intellectually and morally and socially and... And they start to say, but is this really who I am? And it's very hard for parents to say, how could my child who looked a certain way and believed all of these things and affirmed all of the things that I affirmed and were, were pretty passionate about it, now it looks as though they're just letting all of those things mm-hmm. go. And, and partially it's because of exactly what you've just said. We've, we've tried to do a really good job in nurturing them and bringing them up in this environment, but there's going to come a point in time when they are going to have to kind of figure out but is this really who I am? And part of the deconstruction process, I think, is exactly that. If I could add one thing to that, yeah. this this is really interesting, is that in a lot of my conversations with people who have left the faith, you find a huge segment that have a very fundamentalist, controlling, legalistic background. And what happens is the parents control, you can't watch the Smurfs. I've literally heard <laughs> that so many times. You can't listen to this music. You can't dress this way. They feel like their parents are controlling everything, but what they can't control is what they believe. So not believing Mm -hmm. is an act of identity. It's an act of separation. It's an act of rebellion, which is why, again, my dad always said to me, he said, rules without relationships leads to rebellion. So you've got to have rules as a parent. Number one, you got to die on the right hills. But if there's a relationship that is there, then it's a lot easier to separate in a healthy manner than in an unhealthy manner. Yeah, I think some of some of this some of the insight that this this couple gave to my wife and I has been really helpful in keeping us from flipping out when our kids <laughs> ask when our kids start asking some of yeah, those questions. Yeah. Um, so, John, tell us a little bit. You've walked with a lot of students through this. You've walked with a lot of young adults. You've read a lot of testimony. I mean, this was this was your kind of life's research for mm-hmm. a long time. Uh, what what's it like walking with students through this and help? How do how do we help them do this well? Maybe the thing that that'll trigger that is what kinds of things are you especially careful to avoid? 
right. to help them with that. Right. I think the first thing that we want to do is avoid overreacting. I, 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 I mean, like, like, don't flip out. Yes. And I think that's really hard to do. I, my daughter asked me, the, uh, told me last year, she said, Dad, I don't think I believe in heaven. Mm. And everything in me, and this is right before she's going to bed, and everything in me wanted to jump on that and give her reasons why and, and, and confirm that, okay, you're okay. You, you do believe in heaven. And, uh, but I took a but, deep but breath. But that's for your benefit. It's for, totally right. for my benefit. That's right. That's right. And so we don't want to overreact when we hear these things. The second thing I think that we want to do is I think we want to listen really well and and ask questions again not for mm. our benefit but for their benefit and not for not questions that will say not questions like well have you thought about this and have you thought about that but but questions such as are you in a settled place at this point are you still in process are you interested in having others be part of this discussion right? and that's so mm. that they feel heard that you understand where they're coming from because you don't want to jump in and start addressing issues that they're not really dealing with. Well, and they, and they may not believe it when you say this, but I, but I think it would be important to say, you know, to preface your questions, that this is a no judgment question. Yes. Hmm. And, yes. you know, I, I've, hmm. I suspect you might have to say that over and over again and, and mean it by not flipping out when they don't give you the answer that you're hoping for. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Oh, I think that that's exactly how I'd respond. Listen, don't freak out, ask questions. And I think what this modeled was, are you settled? Are you not settled? In other words, I just want to be a part of a conversation. How old did you say your daughter was? Did you say seven? Did I hear 11. that right? Okay, 11. 11. You're able to have conversations with her for decades that's, that's right. to come. This is a long game you're in that's here. That's exactly. Yes. So the way you respond yeah. now is setting you up for when she's 21 and 31 and beyond. Yes, you want to stay in the conversation. That's what I think the ultimate goal is. Hmm. And then the next thing I think that we would do, that you need to do, is exactly what your dad did, is to say, all right, so I've heard what you had to say, and here's what you need to hear from me. Is that regardless of where you land on all of these questions, I will still love you or I will still be your friend. I'm not mm. going to reject you or right. cast you aside because you may be on the fringe of my tribe or not even part of my tribe anymore. And, and, and that is incredibly important for people to hear because I've heard so many people tell me the stories of how when they finally came out and told their family or friends that they didn't they think... Distanced. They And some of mm. them distanced in a, just a really angry, um, uh, mean, aggressive way. And... Um, that was the last thing that, that they needed to hear. Yeah, and that's probably proof positive that it's more about the parents than about the kids. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So, Sean, here's, I think, sometimes they are, there are intellectual issues. There are. And there are, in particular, there are certain biblical doctrines and some passages of Scripture that, that some, of the, some folks who are in this deconstruction process, just, they're just stuck with. Uh, and they're having, they're having trouble choking them down, and they just can't get past them. Mm. I had a really close friend in high school who could not get past the idea of predestination. Mm. And it, it shipwrecked his faith. And, he, and, and I talked to him years later, wow. and he was still stuck on it. Mm. So what, how do you help people work through when, you know, maybe, do, maybe doctrine of hell— um, you know, maybe the you know some of the passages that seem to suggest that God commanded genocide. Yeah. You know, some of the moral issues related to the character of God. Things like how, sure. how do you help them walk through those? Those are, I think, maybe some of the most challenging intellectual issues. Yeah. That come up. So I had a, a Biola student just a couple weeks ago contact me. wasn't in my class that I teach, 
and just said, I've got some questions. Would it be okay if I meet with you? I said, sure, come by office hours. And we, we chatted and raised a handful of these issues. And whenever a student asks questions like this, I just want to know where they're coming from. How long have you been thinking about these issues? How much does this issue bother you? What If you had to give an answer as a Christian that you think someone at Biola would hold, what answer would you give? Do you find that satisfied? I said, I'm going to tell you, but I'm just trying to understand where you're coming from and how you make sense of this. That's number one. Uh, number two is difficult passage. I said, okay, what if we couldn't answer this? What follows? In her case, it was an apparent contradiction that she mm-hmm. thought was in the Bible. I said, if we couldn't answer this and there's really a contradiction, does that mean Christianity is false? She kind of paused. I said, I wouldn't chuck my faith if there was a contradiction. I said, now it would make me, I'd have to rethink certain things. Is the Bible the inspired, inerrant word of God? And what does that mean? Can God allow errors? Does he communicate with errors? Like, I wouldn't chuck my faith if there was a contradiction. In fact, I don't even think a contradiction would mean a book is unreliable, generally speaking. That doesn't necessarily fall, depending on the nature of the contradiction and how many there are. I said, what would cause me to chuck my faith is if we found the body of Jesus, if the Trinity really was incoherent, if Jesus didn't live. There are certain essentials, and the Bible having a contradiction or not is not what I would consider an essential. And she just paused, and it was like a relief to her, and she's Mm -hmm. like, I've never even thought about that. I said, okay, now with that said— So she thought one contradiction and game over. Well, yeah, like this is what happens to a lot of different leaders. Their faith gets shipwrecked on secondary issues. And so trying to just—bottom line is trying to put it in perspective for students is what I do. And second, I said, okay, let's go to the context. What options do we have? Lay out different options, and let's start to look at it. We could do that with hell. We could do that with genocide. Obviously not going to do that here, but there's a range of different positions people can take and why. And also giving her permission. It's okay to wrestle with this. It's okay to live in a little bit of tension. And then I'll also say, so what's the alternative? If you give this up, what worldview better explains reality as a whole than Christianity, even if with Christianity you have a few questions? So I found bottom line when students come, I've just got to reframe it for them. I've got to calm them down. I've got to give them some basic tools. And for most students, that's sufficient. Unless there's something deeper going on, I want to probe and find what that is. So, John, let me follow up on this a bit. Uh, In the book, when you discuss the view of the Bible and its authority, and when confronted with difficult texts, it it seems like what, what you leave people with is... If the Bible is authoritative, at the end of the day, you've got to accept it no matter how hard it is to choke down. Hmm. And I wonder if, that's, if, that, if that approach sh- short circuits the kind of wrestling that Sean's describing there. Hel- help our viewers, I think, understand that you, know, you want people to be committed to biblical authority, but you also want them to have the freedom to wrestle honestly with texts that they may have trouble choking down. For sure. And that's one of the things that we tried to make clear in the book is we want to say oftentimes the struggle begins when our moral intuition runs up against something in scripture and we say, boy, I don't understand how that fits with a God of grace or kindness or love. How does the annihilation of the Canaanites, how does Mm -hmm. predestination, how does hell, how do any of these things really fit well with what I think the Bible uh, depicts God as being? 
And what we're not saying is, well, the, then you just need to, just like you said, choke it down and just accept it. But what we are saying is you should have the freedom in those moments to say, are there faithful ways that Christians have understood these passages differently throughout the history of the church? Is there a way that I can come to the text and have it line up more with the moral intuitions that I think that God has given me and mm-hmm. that I think have a certain measure of authority, a sub-authority in, in my life? And if so, I can if I can do that without twisting scripture into a pretzel to try and get it to say what I wanted mm-hmm. to say or jumping onto some aberrant doctor or some aberrant interpretation that has come out within the last 25 years that's clearly related to cultural issues. If, if I can do that, then I should be, f- I should be free to change my views on some of these passages that have really given me uh, a difficulty mm-hmm. so that I can have a coherence between what I think the Bible is teaching and what I think God's m- gift of moral intuition has, has uh, you know, aligns with. Having said that, though, if at the end of the day I came to the conclusion that the lake of fire is a literal lake of fire that's burning with sulfur and pitch, I still am left with the choice of what is going to be my ultimate authority. Is it going to be my moral intuition or is it going to be the, the, the scriptures? And so we want to say that there really is lots of room to wrestle and to think and to find like-minded Christians who have found, you know, who, who, who think the way that you do within the bounds of orthodoxy. And yet at the same time, there are some limits. If you can't get past what the Bible mm-hmm. seems to teach, if you're coming at it with a, a sincere heart wanting to be faithful, then you need to submit to the teaching mm-hmm. of the text. So, Sean, here's, I think, one of the things I, I suspect takes place as people deconstruct and re-examine their faith is that they discover that, you know, they still hold to the same things theologically, mm-hmm. but their political views mm-hmm. really change. Mm. Um, I mean, they either might, they might move farther to the right or move to, you know, significantly to the left of center. Sure. Um, so, and, and I, I could see where some, you know, some parents would actually flip out if their kids' political views change too. Uh, and I think, you know, in our polarized culture where the political views may be more identity forming for some people than their theological sure. convictions, that would, True. that might carry a lot of weight. Sure. So what what do you, what would you say to someone who, as a result, they move politically? Say they move really far to the left politically, just for example, uh, but their you know their theological convictions haven't changed. So the first thing I would do is I would just say, "Tell me your story. Like, how did this happen?" I would be curious to hear anybody's journey, and that also communicates the message: I'm not threatened by this. I'm your friend. I'm listen. I'm curious. It's going to help me piece together what happened. I, I think these are in-house debates amongst Christians. It's an important issue where we land on certain political issues. If somebody moves far to the left and starts embracing socialism, I'm certainly not going to question their salvation. I'm not going to question my love for that person. But socialism has had very big consequences, and a lot of people have gotten hurt by it. So in the right way and in the right time, I'm going to push back on those ideas and challenge them, but they're obviously still within the body of Christ if they believe in the person of Jesus. I'm not going to let that divide us as friends. So there's a lot of room politically for Christians across issues. Some are more central than others, right? Certain 
yeah, whatever it is, we don't have to go into those particulars, but some issues like the issue of, we mentioned socialism, issue of life. If somebody moves to far left of life, I'm not going to say that person can't be a Christian, but I would have serious concerns with why they hold that position, how they reconcile it with scripture. That would be a huge red Mm -hmm. flag for me. So that's where you've just got to figure out how do I navigate this relationally without questioning the person's faith? But since you said the far left, since a lot is at stake with issues like that, uh, I, in the right way, in the right time, would want to have that conversation if the person is open to it and willing to have that dialogue. Yeah, I think one thing I'd want to emphasize is that no, we've said this before, you know, no, no political platform was written with biblical fidelity as its goal. Mm. And so all of them are going to be flawed in one mm. way. And all of them are going to be, are going to have points of consistency and inconsistency with biblical teaching. Uh, and so I think there, there, I think your point about recognizing, you know, what, what hill am I going to die on here mm. is really important. Because I think, I think there's some political issues where we can, where we can agree to disagree within the bounds of what the Bible allows. Others, not so much. That's right. Um, so, John, here's, I think one of the things, I love the phrase you all use in the book. You talk about the, the free-range <laughs> Christian. Um, explain what you mean by that, and 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 then what fences would you recommend to sort of put some boundaries yeah. around mm-hmm. that? Sure. Yeah, to be a Christian, there are certain things that you need to affirm, certain beliefs that you have to affirm. And then there are, and, and by that I mean to be born again, to be within the family of God, there are certain beliefs that you have to affirm. To be orthodox in a, in a theological way, to be historically Christian, in line with the, the teaching of the church, there are some broader beliefs that you have to hold. Right? So to be saved, we would say you have to believe, you know, Jesus is the Son of God and that his death, burial, and resurrection somehow takes away your sin. Like those would be the core essential beliefs. You might be able to move out a little bit further and then say, then you could be a Christian and have some some uh, heretical beliefs. You can be a Christian and have some aberrant theology. But But if you're going to be historically orthodox, and that's very important to be, then there are some big truths that you still need to hold. And we would point to things like Nicene Creed, Apostles' Creed, the early statements of the mm. church that lay out the broad definition of what it means to be a Christian. And those would be the fence posts that we would want to say, if you're going to identify as a Christian, mm-hmm. that you need to stay within these parameters. Otherwise, you are no longer theologically Christian, and you may not even be a Christian in terms of being saved and born again at some point when you continually move away from from those statements. Not that you have to affirm every statement, but certainly there are some that you cannot deny and remain Mm -hmm. a believer. But within there, within those boundaries, there would be secondary issues and sort of tertiary third-level doctrines that we would want to say that you have freedom before the Lord to go to his word and to think really well about. Where, where, where people of good faith within the Christian community take different views. Correct. Modes of baptism, uh, end times issues, maybe uh, w- w- what does the first three chapters of Genesis um, look like? How do we understand those? Um, complementarianism. Those would be all the, sort of the secondary mm-hmm. level views that good Christians... Not, not hills to die on. Not hills to die on. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, and so that's where we think that you have free range to be a believer, and there is a lot of room to roam in that pasture of doctrine and and belief. Now, Sean, um, sometimes there's there's a cultural backstory Hmm. to some of this that uh, is the 
kind of the, the, the cultural air that a lot of our students and young adults are breathing when they come to this notion of deconstructing their faith. Mm-hmm. And that is, you know, you be you. Uh, and sort of <laughs> says, you know, you do you. And sort of the ultimate thing is to be your authentic self. Mm. And that, uh, you know, we've, we've heard it said that deconstructing your faith is sort of the ultimate act of authenticity. Mm. Or the, the the ultimate act of being your true self. How would you respond to that? Oh, I I think Carl Truman laid this out well in his book and the triumph of the modern. What is the title of that book? Rise and triumph. Rise and triumph. Of the modern. Thank you. Rise and triumph of the modern self. I actually, read it twice, and he lays out that at I forgot the to heart, read the title, but yeah. that's okay. <laughs> yeah. It didn't stick. The title didn't <laughs> stick. The content did. His argument is basically that we've shifted towards the most authentic thing that you can do is, like you said, you be you. Meaning and identity comes from with looking within at how I feel. Now, when that's the case and you add social media to the mix, now what happens? You've got to be yourself and you've got to express it to the world. That's what it means mm-hmm. to be an authentic person. So. I had a conversation, interestingly enough, with another uh, son of a famous evangelist who went the atheist route, and he kind of said, he kind of dismissed my story a little bit. I said, okay, wait a minute. We both went through periods of questioning. You rejected it, so your story counts. I didn't, so my story doesn't count? Like, why? That that doesn't make sense. (laughs) That's not being consistent. But it's this idea, if you express yourself— and you reject authority, and you be you, proclaim it to the world on social media. There's all this emphasis that's added to this period of questioning that I think does damage on so many levels. It makes it harder for a young person to just say, I need space to work this out. I don't quite know yet who I am. That's one issue with it. Uh, so I would just say, I would push back on you be you. And I would say, the first thing is to discover what is true, follow after that, and then like Jesus said, seek ye first the kingdom of God as righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. It's not about finding yourself looking within. It's for finding who God made you to be. And if somebody can follow that, I think they're going to have a very different trajectory. Yeah, it's like, look, it's like look, using a compass looking for directions, but always pointing at yourself. Yeah, we should have used that. Good, but we that's a good way to think about it. So one, one, one question... So. For for each of you before we before we close here, uh, John, you mentioned in the book that there are some things that are part of our evangelical tradition that are mm. worth retaining, and some that are not. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are some of those things that you think could be thrown out of our evangelical tradition without losing very much? Yeah, or maybe gain by we be gaining by doing that. In in the book, we make a distinction between big E evangelicalism and little E evangelicalism. And I think when it comes to little e evangelicalism, I wouldn't want to throw anything out. I think that the history of evangelicalism sort of defined with the Bevington quadrilateral, the you know historian David Bevington, who says that evangelical really means someone who evaluate, you know, who highly values a conversion experience, who really thinks that the Bible is a, has a high view of, of scripture, um, someone who is involved in activism and uh, the centrality of the cross. Those are the, the, the mm-hmm. four things that he says I identify evangelicals. I think that those are all things that are really worth retaining. And the history of the evangelical movement is a history of one where people who left 
comfort and security and finances and did really amazing things in the name of Jesus mm. around the world. So there's this long history of us being involved in caring for the world and being the hands and the feet of Jesus. Those would be things I would think that we would not want to get rid of. The big e evangelicalism, though, would be things like we have a serious integrity issue these days, hmm. right? When you look at just over the last four to five years, there have been so many major evangelical leaders who have had hmm. high profiles and written lots of books and had mega churches and amazing ministries and who internally had serious moral rot going on. And, and, and that would be something I think that we need to, to get rid of. We need to stop thinking that you know, looking, uh, sort of having sort of celebrity-driven ministry. Um, worship needs to be less perhaps of a performance and more of a corporate gathering where we come together. And, and it's no surprise that, you know, when uh, I, I read in, I think it was in Christianity Today, that the vast majority of worship songs that the church is singing now today comes out of four individual megachurches um, all of whose theology is quite questionable. Hmm. Interesting, right? And and yet it's the, they're putting help us. the majority of the of the music industry. I think that this will be sort of controversial, uh, perhaps, and and I'm not sure how it will sit with with some viewers. I, I you know I'm a Canadian, and so I see the United States from a different perspective uh, than someone who was born here. And and I think that one thing that may be helpful is to. To, to to recognize that I don't think that you're going we're going to be able to reform as an evangelical movement as a Christian movement I don't think we're going to be able to reform America back to some sort of Christian country by either legislating it or through the political the halls of power um, I I think that that is a serious turn off to to young people not doesn't mean we can't be involved in politics doesn't mean that there's right. not a place for the right. courts but there is such an identity between partisan politics power. And, and evangelicals, and some of that is warranted, and some of that is a caricature that I think the media has portrayed and that young people have imbibed. Hmm. Um, but I think those would be some of the things that maybe we would want to to okay. uh, let go of. Good. That's, help, that's helpful. And then, Sean, one last question. I'll give you, just give, sure. boil, boil it down to one. What's the most important one? I'm going to hold you to one single thing. Oh, man. Uh, most the most important bit of advice you can give to a person who's in the midst of reexamining their faith. I would say find the right mentor to walk through this process with you. If okay. I could do one thing and I look back, and one is pretty tough that you're holding me to this, Scott, but I think of the people in my life, in particular, people like Rob Lone, who listened to me, mm -hmm. who gave me space to raise certain questions, gave me wisdom, just mentored and guided me through this process. That's probably the single most important factor. Now, I realize some people are going, I don't know how to find that person. That is what we try to do in the book. And now that I think about it, it came out of me thinking, what's the most important thing I could do to help a young person that I can't sit down over coffee with as well, to try to guide them with the book that I wish that I had. So ideally, find a person who will listen to you, who will talk with you, process the very things that we talked about here give you wisdom and care for you through it would be the single most important thing That's to do. That's su super helpful. Well, thanks mm. to both of you. You guys have done, you. a, you've done a great work with this book. It's such a helpful resource. I want to commend to our mm. viewers, to our podcast listeners, of uh, the book called Set Adrift by John Marriott, Sean McDowell. Thanks so much for being part of this. If you're listening uh, by audio on our podcast, be sure and give us a rating on your podcast app and share this with a friend. 
This has been Think Biblically. Thanks for being with us. Hope you've enjoyed the time.